Welcome to the HeartStrong Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Lindbergh. Like many of you, I'm living a life that I just did not expect. And over the years, I've come to value the idea of living HeartStrong, of growing through the challenges in my life, and let's face it, the challenges in our times. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. So each week, I talk to thought leaders, authors, experts, and everyday amazing people who have something to teach us all about living fully amidst our struggles. I have learned so much from others along my journey, and so I hope that my guests will help you on yours. Let's get started. So today I'm sitting down with Bruce Feiler. Bruce is one of America's most popular voices on contemporary life. He is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers and the presenter of two primetime series on PBS. He's also the inspiration behind the drama series Council of Dads on NBC. His two TED Talks have been viewed more than two million times, and Bruce writes about what he has lived and what he's curious about. His work combines timeless wisdom with really timely knowledge to allow people to live with more meaning, joy, and passion. And I'm really excited to talk about his new book, New York Times bestseller, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, where he describes his journey across America collecting hundreds of stories of people's lives and exploring how we can navigate the growing numbers of transitions that we're all living in. His work has also explored the topics of families, relationships, well-being, and religion. And he's writing about and talking about topics that I feel are deeply important for our time. So I am really honored that you are sharing your time with me today. Welcome, Bruce. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you for the example that you've set for all of us about you know, being open and honest about your, your own uh, life and how you've you know, battled the many um, you know, sort of uh, painful experiences that you have and yet found a way to talk about them openly and honestly in a way that can help and inspire others. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's important to talk about these things, right? Because so I want to talk, start talking about your book, The Life is in the Transitions. And I have to tell you, I was at my parents' house in Ohio over Thanksgiving and my mom was like, you might really enjoy this book. So I put it in my bag and brought it home and one morning woke up early and started reading it. And the book is called Life is in the Transitions, as I mentioned. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so seen in this book. Mm. And, you know, I think we all go – we all have a nonlinear life, if you will. I, I think that's something we'll talk about here today. But I don't know. Mine has been more of a public nonlinear life in the communities mm. that I've lived in. And so I just felt really seen in it. So I wanted to – I'm like, I have to meet him. That was my first, you know, thing when I when I started reading your book. So I would love to talk about how that book came to life. Like, tell us about the story project and, and how you were inspired to, to bring these stories together. Well, thank you. Since you started with your – Mother, I suppose I'll start with mine. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in in so I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and um, I left there. In I'm older than you are, but I left there in the '80s and and went north to college and sort of found that I learned about myself by leaving one place and going to another. And that was the age of this was the '80s, and it was the age of discount air for airfare. And I was like, oh well. I should learn about myself as an American. So I moved to Japan and I started teaching junior high school and I started writing letters home. Here's, I'm showing my age on crinkly airmail, airmail paper. And, you know, like you can't happen to me. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, 
everybody said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great, have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went viral in the sort of the old fashioned sense of the word. And I thought, well, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone who read a book. And actually, uh, since we're I have a little bit of time here. I'll tell the story, which I never tell, which is actually went to the public library and, and looking for a book on how to write a book. And the only book they had was about propaganda in World War II. <laughs> like that's how like like that's how like naive I was about this whole process. But it doesn't happen. But it did happen in my case is that my mother ran into someone at the store who had an agent who wrote a book about being a temp, actually. And I sold my first book at 24, and I've never held a job since. So in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan and England and country music. I spent a year as a circus clown, as you know. In my 30s, I went back and forth to the Middle East, writing books and making television about the Bible. Um, You know, and I think in the context of the conversation we're about to have, I think of this as a linear life right? The, the, the fantasy of the linear life. Like mm-hmm. I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. Then I had some success. I got married and had children. And, you know, my life was like the hockey stick that people talk about, right? Starts here and then boom, everything is going up. Mm-hmm. But then in my forties, I was just beaten up by life. First, I got cancer, as you know, at 43, um, as a new dad of identical twin daughters. Mm-hmm. That's what led me kind of thinking about and worrying about dying, which I did, I pretty much did every day for the next decade. I asked a group of friends to form a council of dads for my daughters. I wrote a memoir about this. It became a TV series. Um, I also had some financial troubles in the, in the last recession. And then my dad, who has Parkinson's, got very depressed, uh, who had Parkinson's, I should say, and, try, and, and tried to take his own life wow. six times in 12 weeks. That's the, the reference to my mom. She called one day and it was like, you know, your dad is trying to kill himself. And I was like, he's what? Um, so we were, this was a crisis, right? In every way. And it kind of felt to me, um, you know, and you and I had this email exchange in advance of this, but it felt to me what I think you felt like and many people feel like, which is that life is like coming at me from all directions. Like mm-hmm. the rules are out the window. These things are happening, which don't are not supposed to happen or certainly was not going to happen to me and my own kind of narrative of my life. And what actually provided the answer was this situation with my father. I was writing at the time a column in the New York Times about families. And I had met a man named Marshall Duke who teaches at Emory who had written about the power of storytelling that children who know more about their family history are better able to navigate their own ups and downs in their lives. This was the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. And when my father kind of lost control of his story, I thought, well, here's an idea. Like, what if I send him a question about his life? So one morning I emailed him a question, like, tell me about the stories you, uh, tell me about the house you, you, um, what was the first question? Tell me about the toys you played with as a child. And he answered that question. I was like, okay, wow, I'll send him another one. Like, tell me about the house you grew up with. And this went on essentially every Monday for eight years. And what I began to realize, and I wrote about this, you know, in the New York Times, and I heard from people all over. And and what I began to realize is that there is this, the power of storytelling to help us when we get through a sort of plot twist in our own life story. Mm -hmm. And um, 
just the final beat and then we'll, we can we can move you know in whatever direction you want to go i actually went to a college reunion it was five years ago i know because my next one's coming up <laughs> and um I, I told a version of this story i was moderating a panel and i and i told a version of the story and everybody came up and they had a story you know mm -hmm. like um, my wife went into the hospital and died the next day, or my child tried to kill herself, or my brother has stage four this, or I'm being sued for malpractice. And I called my wife and I was like, something is going on out in the country and I don't really know what it is. And I want to figure out how I can help. And so what I did was I created this thing that I called the Life Story Project. And I went out and I just sought people, all 50 states, people who lost limbs and lost homes and changed careers and changed religions and got sober and got out of bad marriages. And in the end, I ended up doing, um, you know, uh, a thousand hours of conversations. I had 6,000 pages of transcripts and I called this the life story project. Just asking people, tell me the story of your life. We would get to the difficult parts. I would ask them a lot of questions and I was looking for patterns and takeaways that could help all of us in times of change. Hmm. That's, that's, that was probably one of the things I loved the most is that, you know, a lot of people write a book about their own ideas or their own experiences, but you were incorporating all of these peoples. And that was just that, I thought that's so powerful. You know, in the book, you, you said that nearly everyone I spoke to said at least one aspect of their lives was off schedule, off course, out of sync, out of order. I mean, gosh, I know I have felt that and expressed that so many times in my life. And then you also wrote, and this is the thing that I think when I read it, it's the beginning of the book, really, really is when I felt seen, was that the, you said this expectation that life will be orderly and predictable is a significant source of dissatisfaction. And I think that a hundred times, yes, but where did we get this idea? Because yeah. somehow we all have it. Like, where do you think we got this idea that there's supposed to be like the picket fence and the two cars and the happy family all the time and the we're not supposed to get sick? Like, where did we get that? Well, I think that that is actually a profound and important question. And I actually think I'm going to answer your question, but then I'm going to tee up something else that we might talk about, okay. which is whether our children who have all now been shaped by the pandemic are going to have the same sort of problem that we have. But let me just first of all answer, because I do think that, that this really gets to the heart of it. And I guess the first thing to say is that that expectation is an aberration. If you look historically at how people understood and looked at life, this idea that it was going to be linear, predictable, um, you know, similar across the board is the aberration. So it, it's, yeah. it's the accident the linear expectation. So if you go back and look at an antiquity, they did not think life was linear. They thought life was cyclical, right? That there was a sort mm -hmm. of, because they were defined by um, the agricultural, uh, you know, dominant way of living. And that mm -hmm. was cyclical by, by seasons, by floods and things like that, right? So the, the important thing to understand about the way we look at our lives is that it's shaped by how we look at the world. So when they're looking at the agricultural cycle, they think, well, that's the way life is. So our lives to every season, turn, 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 all these ideas mm -hmm. that came. It was actually the Bible that introduces the idea of linear time. And so in the Middle Ages in the West, by the time sort of you know, Christianity had taken over um, the world, they think life is a staircase up to middle age, that you peak in middle age. Okay, right. They have no medicine and things like that. Right. So and then you decline. Right. So there's no new love at 50. There's no retiring to Florida and opening an Airbnb. They don't they don't have 
mm. Airbnbs in the middle age. But that's a, an important thing. And what's important yeah. about that is it's the opposite of how we grew up in the 20th century, thinking that midlife was at the bottom. They think midlife is the top. Okay. Mm. So it's not until the middle of the 19th century where the industrial revolution, what does that bring? That brings factories, that brings conveyor belts, that brings science, that brings the idea that you put the car at the beginning of the assembly line uh, and then you have a finished car at the end. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what happens is in the 20th century, as people are, um, uh, as psychology is invented during this time and it comes along, it follows the assembly line model, okay, is that we are like cars or like washing machines, okay, and that we follow this path. So if you look at Piaget, who says children go through developmental cycles, Freud says we go through psychosexual uh, stages, okay, Erickson has the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief, I don't have to tell you about that. These are all linear constructs. And this idea just takes hold. People assume that everything goes in a straight line. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't have to tell you this, but the five stages of grief is just wrong. We don't yeah. do things in order. We no. don't always have those. And in fact, I, I wrote about this as, um, as you may know, I write a newsletter on all of these themes twice a week now. Anybody's listening it. can- Yes, I read it. <laughs> uh, can subscribe at yes. brucefeiler.bulletin.com. Um, and I recently talked about the five stages of grief. It's just, it's it's- she wasn't even talking to people who were um, who were mourning. She was talking to people who were dying <laughs> and about the stages of accepting that you were going to die from a terminal disease, not the people that were left behind. But all of this is just accepted as truth, capital T, truth, in the late 20th century. And this reaches its peak with Gail Sheehy, who writes a book called Passages that all of our mothers read in the 70s. And it says... Everyone does the same thing in their 20s, the same thing in their 30s, and has a midlife crisis between 39 and 44 and a half. Like, that's how precise <laughs> and absurd this was. Wow. So that is the idea. But now we don't look at the world. Now we know that the, there's the internet. We know the things that bounce around. We know that we're globally connected. Mm -hmm. And so we've changed the way we look at the world. And we haven't changed the way we look at our lives. And so kind of my way of phrasing this is that we are all haunted by the ghost of linearity. So that when nonlinearity happens to us, we think it's an aberration. But in fact, nonlinearity is the norm. And I think it is, you, the way you said it, it was just so beautiful. And it's exactly my experience with life is in the transitions out in the world is that the reaction that people have had, and this is a technical academic term, is whew, like, thank God, like, I'm not alone. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I, what I've been trying to do is put a language to these sort of inchoate feelings that we all have. Yeah. And I think that that is so important. Like the five stages of grief. I know after my son died, everybody was, you know, talking about that. And, and I think that's just BS, frankly, because we are, we, you ebb and flow in and out of things. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book when you talked about, you know, the different ways that you can reframe transitions and work through them. You said we move in and out of all of these things. And I think reframing that is, is, is so important because I think if you look at the world that we live in, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. It's like 
religion, you know, uh, we love to sell black and white. It makes people comfortable. People, you know, if yes. if, if per, somebody stands up in church and says, I don't have the answers, I don't actually know how this works. People don't like that. They don't want shades of gray. I think that's why you mentioned COVID before. I mean, I wonder if that's why we've struggled so much through this pandemic with polarity. It's like, we want the answers. And the reality is we don't have them. I mean, we all find our meaning in different places. Um, but I, I just think that that part of the book is maybe that concept is perhaps one of the most important things that needs to be shifted in our society. Like, how do you think we shift to that? How do we, how do we move in that? Well, I think that we are, you know, unfortunately now we, that brings us to the pandemic. Cause I think, the, yeah. I think the way you just phrased that question was how do we shift yeah. um, to that? I think that the answer is we are shifted to that. I, I think yeah. that because we are, we are shaken out of our, um, you know, out of our complacency. And I think that that's one of the many, many impacts of the pandemic. I mean, I, my children were, um, they were 14 when it happened and they're about to be 17. It was, we taped this conversation right at the, at the two year anniversary. That's a defining period of their lives that has been, that has been shaped. And I, I I was just thinking about this last night. will define their lives for a very yeah. long time, right? The, the, anybody who who knows about storytelling, if you if you ask people to tell their story of their life, which I have done now for, I've collected four hundred life stories in four years because I'm just um, in the middle of writing a new book about how our work stories evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, knows that there's this thing called the reminiscence bump, right? Which is that many of, we have a lot of memories in adolescence. And so for my children, it's going to be a defining part of their adolescence. So let me answer your question this way. Let me just, first of all, talk a little bit about what happened. So I got all the, I did 200 and, you know, some odd life stories. I had a thousand pages, thousand hours of trans, thousand hours of transcripts and a 6,000 page. <laughs> when, I, when I transcribed it, it literally was like reached my children's uh, shoulders at the time. And as you said, I didn't go looking for transitions. I didn't go looking for phases and tools, all these things that I have. I just literally tell me your story and I listened as intently as possible. But I had these things. And then what I did was I gathered a a group of, of about 10 people and we spent a year coding these stories, looking for themes and patterns and takeaways that could help all of us when we go through these periods. And sort of what I learned was that um, the kind of the three big ideas were number one, the linear life is dead, right? The idea that we're going to have one job, one relationship, one spirituality, one sexuality from adolescence to assisted living, like that's <laughs> deader than it's ever been. It's been replaced by what I call this nonlinear life, which involves many more transitions. Okay. So my data show, we go through a disruptor every 12 to 18 months. Um, most of the, that's 36 in our lives. Most of these we get through relatively easily, but one in 10 becomes what I call a life quake, a kind of massive period of change. And that's what leads to a life transition. And then the last point is life transitions are a skill that we can and must master. And we can kind of get into any of that that you want, wherever you want to go, I'm happy to follow. But to answer your specific question, um, I, I want to tell you about one part of the process. And that is, so we analyzed these life quakes. And what was and I analyzed them on two poles, okay? So like two axes of a graph. Okay, one of them was voluntary or involuntary, okay? And that was about equal. I think it was 57% voluntary, uh, involu- 57% voluntary, 
57% involuntary. I should look it up. It's on my desk. 43% voluntary. Now, I looked at that and thought 43% voluntary. Like, that's great. Like, what's a voluntary transition? Like, you get married, right? Or you have children. Like, I mean, I have identical twins. Like, that was voluntary. It was wonderful. But it was a transition. Like, it was still <laughs> difficult. Um, you know, you, you know, voluntary transition is that you change jobs. We know 50 million Americans have changed jobs in the last year. So this is all, that's what a vol- involuntary is, a death of a loved one, a diagnosis, a natural disaster. So that was one. And that was relatively, and I looked at this and thought, wow, we are embracing this. We are embracing the nonlinear life. That's great. I had a bunch of millennials on my team and they looked at this and they were like, whoa, 57% are involuntary. Like we can't control our lives. Like that's what we, <laughs> and so I found this interesting. Now, yeah. The other poll I did was personal or collective. Okay. That was like 93% personal and um, 7% collective or what it, it was around those numbers. Here I thought I had just wasted a, an analysis point, right? Like I had done a, a personal one is, something happens to you or your family, right? Your job, or you have an accident, or you have a cancer, or whatever it might be. Collective is, you know, 9-11 came up a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, as I said, a natural disaster, a recession, a war. So the smallest category was collective involuntary. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this and I thought, okay, well, I guess I said, I've kind of wasted an analysis point, but I did it. So I might, and there's a line in my book that's a one sentence that's, you know, as a writer, I would call a throwaway line where I said, had I done these conversations a century ago, two world wars, depression, Mm -hmm. cold war, you know, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, you know, I I would have had more collective transitions. Yeah. Lo and behold, here comes the pandemic. Literally the month the book was, was coming out. And so suddenly the entire planet is in a collective involuntary life quake. And so I think that where we were, if we go back two years before the pandemic, is we believed that collective things didn't happen. I mean, you and I are having this conversation. I don't know when people will be listening or watching or whatever people will be doing. But you and I are having this conversation more or less right at the moment when there's about to be a major war in Europe for the first time in two generations. Yeah. Like, so we grew up thinking we were done with war, yeah. <laughs> you know, we were done with um, a public health crises. We were done with involuntary transitions and that we could just do whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. I, we've been shaken out of that complacency in the last um, few years. And I think that is the answer to your question of how we can. I do not believe my children, as much as they would like to believe it, are going to go through life thinking that they control what's going. They can control everything that's going to happen to them mm-hmm. because they know um, that the pandemic changed that irrevocably. Yeah, yeah. That that is such an interesting point. You said, um, and that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Is that, um, you know, when you were talking about these voluntary and involuntary um, life quakes and, and and the collective part, you said. Um, Let's say you highlighted some research by Glenn Elder about the impact that these collective events have, and you shared that your data suggests that these types of shared events may no longer hold the same sway, which obviously you wrote this prior to the pandemic. But you also said, you know, we have this, we've kind of 
come to this idea that we're all so unique and we're all so individualist. And I and and there's some yeah. really positive things about that. I think in our kids' lives and agency, and you can kind of go down that path, right? But I also think that there's some parts that has that have crippled us in a way with that that made the pandemic even more difficult because we see ourselves as you know, well, you don't understand what I'm going through. And, and I think that I'm wondering what you think about that. And, and I, and I do think if you look at grandparents, I had grandparents in World War II or, you know, in the depression, it's like there was something pretty special about those collective involuntary events that did bring people together. Like, and we desperately need that, you know, in our, in our world right now. Yeah. I think there's two dimensions of this. This is a really interesting point. And I think it is, it's something that's become more clear as the pandemic has gone along. So let me address two parts of this. First of all, I want to talk about kind of, you said that there's advantages. Let's talk about the advantages of not having these collective things, right? Which is that there Mm -hmm. has been a lot of change. I think it's particularly true um, as I said, I'm writing this book about work right now. And it, and when you look at this, at the history, you know, the, the way I like to think about this is if you go back, call it 120 years ago, right, mm-hmm. to the turn of the 20th century, most of the primary sources of meaning in our lives were given to us. We had to live where our parents wanted us to live, do what our parents wanted us to do, believe what our parents wanted us to believe, love who our parents wanted us to love, on and on and on and on. That has changed, you know, almost 180 degrees. And and we can live where we want to live, do what we want to do, believe what we want to believe. And particularly for people that were not on top, which is to say women, you know, minorities, uh, blacks, immigrants, disabled people, mm-hmm. LGBTQ people, like time and again, all of the, 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 the evaporation of the restrictions on how you find meaning in your life is something that is almost universally to the good. But it comes with a massive downside, which is that we have so much choice Okay, that we are paralyzed by choices. We can, and that's what we see now going on in the pandemic. Well, it, what is the pandemic? What is a life quake of any kind? It's a pause. It like we we stop doing everything that we've been doing, which causes us to reimagine what is it that we want to do. Which is why people left relationships. People have are having more babies. People are move. I mean. In April of 2021, that's a year into the pandemic, 4 million people quit a job in America, the highest that had ever been recorded. By December of 2021, that was up to 4.5. You do the math, that's 50 million people are quitting a job, not leaving, I mean, excuse me, not being fired, furloughed, or laid off from a job, quitting a job, okay? We now see people moving, right? I don't want to commute anymore. Why do I want to live in a tiny apartment, you know, or why do I want to drive an hour and a half? Like, I want to work from home. Mm-hmm. We're open. Come back to work. No, I don't <laughs> want to anymore. Right. Yep. So that is that is a blessing, but it also is a burden because yep. it's almost like every day we wake up and like, am I doing the right thing? Am I believing the right thing? Am I loving the right person? Am I, you know, am I living in the right place? Do I? That's a lot. We get a what lot. I call sort of writer's block, writing our own life story. Mm-hmm. So I think that what. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, there's a, so now we get to the second part of the question is, what does that do to us collectively? Okay. So I think that collectively it does a couple of things. Number one, it's all, we're all, we're all in this 
not together, right? <laughs> because right. we all get to, okay. So what does the, what does the collective involuntary life quake do? Realize, oh, wow, we are in this together. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wear a mask, not just to protect myself, but actually to protect you. Cause I want you to protect one because we don't know because a virus that starts wherever it starts and however it started, a virus that begins in China or a mutation in Omicron that begins in South Africa, it's in South Bend within a week. Right. Like we are, back to what I was saying before, we are interconnected, yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Climate change is not something that is going to be addressed just by somebody in South Bend. We need somebody in South Africa and South Kazakhstan you know, to, to do uh, the same thing. So the, the collective involuntary life quake jolts us into realizing that we are collective in mm-hmm. any way. And that, as you say, is what's incredibly rare in particularly the United States of America right now mm-hmm. when everybody goes to you know their own news sources, talks to their own people, goes to their own religious institutions or never goes to a religious institution. Mm-hmm. So there are very few things that are collective and that in an odd kind of way is the blessing that comes from giving up a little bit of that freedom. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I thought about you know, with, with this whole thing is that, so I have two children with, you know, a rare, with rare diseases. My one son passed away and I know, so I, I've been in these advocacy and these disease-based communities or these yes. communities of people with crisis for a long time. And my observation is that people like to put themselves in silos. So I'm the cancer mom and I'm the, I got the disabled kid and I'm the divorced person. And I, you know, whatever you would, and we all, there's a million of them, right? And then they talk to one another about how bad their thing is. And then they, you know, raise awareness about their thing. And I, and, and what, one of the things that I am really passionate about after having looked at this life that I've lived with my kids for the last 16 years is that there are so many commonalities. And that is what I hope we can get to the point of saying, well, gosh, you know, the mom whose kid had cancer and has a disabled kid, there are some through lines here, you know, or, you know, I had this experience in South Africa and this experience in South Bend, there's some through lines here. Like that is what I think that one of the things that we need to get to in our world is realizing the commonality. And one of the reasons I love this book so much is that I think it's the idea of transition, of life pain, of challenge, of reinvention, of self, of self-discovery that is the through line that we all go through in through different cultures and different religions and different parts of the world. But that is what makes us human. Like that's what I think brings us together. And I think it's that, I, I think that, first of all, that's just beautifully expressed in terms of how the comfort that one finds in being in a community of like-minded people, okay? Which is important, let me say. Which is I'm absolutely not, important. Yeah, not, it's yeah. secure. It's it safe. Yes. You can be honest. You don't have to put on a happy face. You right. can talk about all of the frustrations of having whatever particular life quake you're experiencing. And that's very, very valuable. Absolutely. But the downside is, um, is that... <clears throat> is that you um, become so inwardly focused that you sometimes can or forget that the people who are in, as you said, the neighboring community. I mean, I, 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 maybe a great example of this is um, addiction. One in four of the people that I spoke to 
had addiction in their life. Either a parent who struggled from addiction, they struggled from addiction, their spouse struggled from addiction, or their child struggled from addiction. And it was all of those. I was startled by this. Addiction has not been a big part of my life, but I kept hearing it over and over again. And I, it was, that's a quarter of people. That is an astonishing number. And it is important to remember that while I'm worrying about my cancer, okay, and my child's disability, that my neighbor is struggling with addiction. And I think that the, you know, in an odd kind of way, (laughs) this is, this is something that actually that the Bible offers an answer to, right? You know, in the middle where it, it says that we are all, you know, we are all made in God's image, right? And that we look in the other person and see the the face of a vulnerable God uh, in our own suffering. And that is an idea that they understood 3,000 years ago. And I think that the other thing, oddly, <laughs> that the... Um, you know, um, or powerfully that the Bible tells us is that the Bible understands this nonlinearity, right? So if you look at the, at the biblical story, okay, um, the biggest breakthroughs occur in the moments of vulnerability, right? When Abraham leaves his father's house and goes to the promised land, when the Israelites leave slavery and go out into the wilderness, when the Israelites leave and go to Babylon, time and again, the biggest breakthroughs on the story are when they are at, at their most vulnerable. And I think that to go back to what I was saying earlier, I was mentioning that we have three dozen life quakes, excuse me, three dozen disruptors in our lives. They happen every 12 to 18 months. And most of these we get through. That a disruptor could be as small as twisting your ankle or a fender bender or as big as having your house burned down or, um, you know, having, having a recession. But one in 10 of those becomes a life quake, okay? A massive burst of change. We go through three to five of these in our lives. The average length um, to get through a life quake is five years, so if you think three to five years, four, five, six years, you know, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we spend in transition. So what we've done is sort of fetishized and normalized the stable part and said, and we've pathologized um, the vulnerable part, the life quake, let's just get back to the stable time, right? right. That's what happened with the pandemic. We're going to go inside for six weeks. We're going to mitigate. We're going to go back. We were never going to go back. Yeah. But now we know we're not going back, which is why so many people are moving and quitting and, and having babies or leaving spouses or whatever it is. The point is, if we spend half of our lives just saying, I'm going to grit through it, I'm going to get back to stability, we are missing half of our lives. Right. And, and in all the religious stories, in all the great myths, Hercules, Orpheus, you know, whatever, Samson, Odysseus, all of the breakthroughs happen in the unstable periods. And we're missing an opportunity to be in relationship to one another and learn yes. from one another's experiences. So when I was talking to my husband about coming on this podcast, we we're standing in our kitchen and we we're talking about some particular things about that we were struggling with with our son. And then my husband starts pointing to the houses around us. And he's like, they're going through this and they're going through yeah, that. And they're, go- nice. and they're all different things. I mean, I'm looking at these houses right now, but everybody's got these things. And yet we want to have this like very neatly, you know, Instagrammed life that makes everything look like, well, the shit's hitting the, st- the fan, but I'm okay. You know, or this is all, all horrible, but, but everything looks fine. And I just wish that we could like this conversation normalize, like you said, half of our adult life, we're going through this. And that is the, the thing that I think the linker, I really do. I think it's the thing that can link, link us to one another and to have really, I mean, the more, more 
significant relationships with one another, you know, more better, deeper experiences of life. Well, I love this, by the way. And what it makes me think is back to this idea of saying that what normalized linearity was the 20th century. Like, again, I don't know. I really don't know where you live, um, what kind of neighborhood you live in. But what did the 20th century do? It put street grids. It put suburbs. Mm-hmm. Right. It put it, it put lots of similar looking houses that all look pretty from the outside with lawns. And as you said earlier, okay. white picket fences. Um, and now. Uh, so it's that the the grid, you know. I'm I mean, I'm here in Brooklyn where the streets are very straight, right? And I can look over into Manhattan where the streets are even straighter. And um, those straight lines were powerful. Railroads were straight yeah. lines, you know. Uh, these were all great. But what we know now in the 21st century is that we're connected by networks, right? By mm-hmm. the internet. The, what allows you to connect with somebody who might be in a grief circle, right? Or an addiction circle or in a, um, you know, w- w- whatever is your nonlinear event is that we can connect and mm-hmm. it's powerful, but we can also exclude to your point. Yeah. And we need to use those connections, not just to isolate ourselves, but also to connect with other people and realize that the, that the thing that we have in common is the life quake, is the transition, is the nonlinearity, and more to the point, is ultimately the, the gift of storytelling that allows us to tell a story, to listen to a story, to hear a story, to share a story, because that's the only way you get through this is by telling a new story in which you add a chapter as you have done powerfully, even in this conversation. I had two children with this situation. One of those children passed. That is a chapter in my life. It's a theme in my life. It's an ongoing story. It didn't end because I went through the fifth stage of grief. Um, But ultimately, it is not my whole story. Um, It is just part of my story. And it's the way to make this connection. It's why the big theme in Life is in the Transitions is that we ultimately have to learn to tell the story of our lives where we become the hero of that story. Uh, And you only become a hero by overcoming adversity. Yeah, that's powerful. One of the things I noticed about all the stories in, in your book and what was interesting to me was it seemed there was like a theme of agency. You know, Mm. these people had to make changes. They went through something. I mean, some of the stories, you can't believe what people go through when you read these things, you know? And I was- By the way, can I just pause on that? That is also one of the comforting things. It's like, okay, (laughs) wow. Like I thought I had it. I had suicide, you know, I had cancer, you know, I had had financial ruin. I had all these things. I was like, well, I'm really glad I don't have those four things. (laughs) I'm glad I wasn't a white supremacist for a while. You know, (laughs) I'm I'm glad I don't have this problem or that problem. Yeah. I mean, it is. And it's also such a testament to the human spirit too. I mean, just a beautiful testament that people, if you're going through something hard, you can make it through because the people in your story did. But, you know, this idea of agency, this idea that I can change my story, I think is so powerful. And that is something that I have personally embraced. I'm a firm believer that I get to decide how my story goes. We have these involuntary things that happen to us, happen for us, depending on what you believe, right? But I think that 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 has been the biggest tool for me. Tell me about those is was there a theme there of agency? Like these people went through really hard things and they found their way through. And life, and by the way, I think it's really important to say they went through. It doesn't mean that life was like the picket fence. They didn't necessarily get to that. That's not yes, what yeah. they maybe no, the goal change, is. Right. 
But right. what happens, I think, is do. that you change in the course. You think you yes. want the picket fence and it turns out, you know, you want the community. And so or, you, you know, you want the farm or whatever. I could I could I could be to get. But yeah. But I'll say, yes, I think that I'm so glad you brought up agency because I do. Let me go back to what I said earlier. OK, yeah. so go back to 120 years ago when um, the our sources of meaning were given to us. And as we've established, we no longer have that. We get to make our own meaning. But there are a lot of choices. How do people navigate that overabundance of choice? The answer is we have three sort of building blocks that give us meaning, three gears, as I like to think of it, that we shift in the course of their lives. This was the hardest thing, but in some ways the most satisfying thing for me to code in the many stories that I heard. So I call these three building blocks of um identity, the ABCs of meaning, okay? So the A is agency, okay? That's what we do or make or create. For many of us, it's our work or it's the thing that we do that gives us a sense that we can impact the world. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only way that we have meaning. The other, the next one, the B and the ABCs is belonging, Okay, that's our relationships, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our co-religionists, the people we play tennis with or, you know, protest politics with. Um, And the C is a cause, a calling, a higher purpose, something larger than ourselves. Okay, in narrative terms, um, I call these your A story. I mean, excuse me, your me story. That's agency. Your we story. That's your belonging. And your C story. That's your cause. So what happens is that we all have all three um, within us, um, but we change over time. Um, okay, so I, but we have them in different orders. Like I'm a writer, I'm very agentic. I'm um, be, I'm a very involved family member, a super involved dad. Cause somewhat less important to me. Mm-hmm. My wife started an organization that helps entrepreneurs in 50 countries. Mm-hmm. She's very cause oriented. Agency, she's a co-founder and a CEO, so she's very agentic. Relationships, you know, she loves us, but she tolerates the rest of us. So she, I'm an ABC and she's a CAB. And what, but what happens in a life quake is that we shape shift, as I call it. Okay, so maybe we've been working very hard and we want to spend more time with our family. Maybe we've been, you know, maybe we've been a stay-at-home parent or a primary caretaker and we burn out, right? Or maybe we've been caring for an aging relative and we want to give back. Maybe we've been giving back. And we're like, I'm done with that. I'm, it's drained me. I want to do something for myself. So in the course of our lives, what happens in these transitions is that we shape shift. Sort of imagine Lady um, Justice, but instead of two dishes, there are three and there's like pebbles in them. Kind of you get off kilter in some way. I think a lot of us now, funnily enough, now that I say this in the pandemic, we're a little bit over-indexed on belonging. Like we've been, yeah. <laughs> we've been with our friend, our family a little bit too much. Um, um, and so maybe we say, I need to do something for myself, or maybe I want to go out in the community like and volunteer mm-hmm. and connect with other people. So we shape shift in the course of our lives, which is our way of adjusting to kind of the new reality that we find ourselves in. Yeah. No, I think that I found that really fascinating and I could relate to those things a lot. I'm curious, the people that you talked to who really were able to best, for lack of a better word, but but I guess get through their transitions well yeah. is what I would say. What role did like faith or spirituality or belief play in that? Because I'm, I'm very interested personally in how we go through these things in our lives and how that also shape shifts what we believe in, but that, that also – I. I've observed people who have that as some sort of a foundation in their life 
it helps them. Did you find that in your work? Well, let me say it this way. I mean, obviously I'm interested in religion. I've spent decades, I wrote five New York Times bestsellers about religion, Walking the Bible, mm-hmm. Abraham, Where God Was Born, um, America's Prophet, a book about Adam and Eve. So I, I'm deeply interested in this topic, but I also know that people, that relig- religiosity is changing. Yeah. And um, so I guess I would say it, first of all, I would make a distinction between religion and spirituality, okay? Because I think, you know, religion in some ways are the institutions that popped up with the laws and community, which is great, you know, and inspirational leaders and thinkers, but also a lot of exclusion that came with religion. And so I think that what I would say is that I believe, hmm, let me just make sure I believe this enough to say it out loud. Um, I think that what's in my head, and I would need to stress test this a little bit, but I would say that I believe that most people, when they go through a life quake and the transition that comes out of it, as you know, my book has tools and phases and stages and all these things that will help you. But I would say that most people get through at some point, go through a period where rationality, science, technology, all the kind of shallow gods or whatever that we have today fail them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, for some people, it's God. For some people, it's spirituality. For some people, it's fate. <laughs> it's destiny. So it's not all sort of organized religion. Um, but I believe that everybody, most people, go through a period where it becomes um, – it leaves the realm of the rational, the concrete, the I can explain by the laws of physics, mm-hmm. you know, and the laws of science, you know, that um, they get through it in some way by moving to a more ab- abstract, um, uh, fantastical, spiritual, romantic, fateful, destiny, poetic, mm-hmm. you know, it leaves the realm of the science textbook at some point and goes into the realm of the poetic. And that's one of the reasons hmm. that that's just a big conviction of mine. So I wouldn't say it was necessarily um, faith for everybody, but for everybody, it was something that was faithful in some ways. So something that's bigger than themselves, would you say? Yes, and that can't be explained, (laughs) Um, uh, but that yet also is intimately connected. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm interested in spirituality and religion and faith and all of these things is because I do believe that we've become overly reliant on our phones (laughs) and our doctors, right, and our ability to Google every answer. But some questions Mm -hmm. don't have answers that lie in our phones. But they do somehow lie in our spirit and our soul. And I think that that's what happens to people is they realize that they got to get out of their brain at some point and they got to get into their heart. Their heart. And you get to a point where you, as we've talked about in this conversation, we're kind of not in control. We're not in control. So where, so then what does that mean? Because if you, I mean, I know for my own self, after my son died, I went through every, every note in his chart. I wanted to understand exactly, again, I wanted linearity. I wanted to say, I wanted an if then statement and it was very complex and very complicated. And then you get human beings involved and it's more complicated. Right. And so I think I too had, and but that was a huge part of my own personal journey of, of sort of dismantling and rebuilding what that mm-hmm. looks like for me. And 
I'm just personally very interested in that. And I think it's an important part of, of surrender to yes. a nonlinear yes. life. So I, I, no, I, I, I would just I, comment. I mean, first of all, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I do think now you get into these tools. I yeah. do think that's part of that is accepting that it's an emotional yeah. thing. Part of that sure. is also shedding, right? And I think she, yeah. you know, reliving Absolutely. and shedding the patterns. I mean, that's one of the things that happens when you are in any medical situation is you go into the grip, if you will, of the medical system, which yeah. is all about, you know, control and rhythm and meter and take these medications and show up for these appointments. And part of, you know, when I hear that, it sounds to me a little bit like a reliving, but also a molting, a shedding of mm -hmm. that pattern where everything was controlled. Um, but I want to say something that you, you said that we can't control. And I agree on a deep and profound level that that is true, that, that half of the things that happen to us are involuntary. Mm -hmm. um, but I also believe on a deep and powerful way that we do have one way that we do and can control it, which is that we can script the story that we tell about it. Mm. Uh, and that story can include the lack of control, mm. right? I mean, we've, we've been talking a lot about the past, about the ancient world, okay, and about the Middle Ages and 150 years ago. And we know that losing a child um, was a much more everyday thing for most of human history that yes. it blessedly has become now. The blessed in the sense that we do Many more of our children can survive these things, but unblessed in the sense that those of us who, for whom it, we, we lose a child, we then feel aberrant in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Like we did maybe even that we did something wrong, either in conceiving of this child, right? And giving this child, you know, the DNA pattern that the child has, but also, as you said, how, could I have done something differently? Might it have been different, right? I mean, these are really painful questions that in, in, in their own way are trying to impose order on disorder, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's the Chinese fault <laughs> for leaking that thing, right? It's, you know, Fauci's fault for telling us not to or to wear a mask, right? It's my neighbor's fault for not getting it back. Like these are ways that we seek order so much. Um, mm. and that, but that is still fundamentally a, a story of storytelling. And I think that the, the empowering thing that we can do in the face of powerlessness is to realize that we can tell a story and retell a story and retell a story over time. I want to say one thing here that's important to me, and that is I've been thinking about a lot. When I grew up, the way I understood memory was that our memories are like fixed things. We put our, mem our memories like are in shoeboxes that live in the closet. And if I want to remember my high school prom or my first job or my first kiss or the you know fire that destroyed my neighbor's house or the hurricane, in this case, that destroyed our house, <laughs> um, I go to the closet and pull out the shoebox and there is the memory inside. Hmm. That's not how memory works at all. That's a myth that we were told. And the truth is, whenever I pull out the memory of the hurricane or the fire or the basketball game that we won or the prom that I attended, right, or my own diagnosis with cancer or the death of my child, every time I tell that story, I tell it in a different way for a different purpose. I'm retelling it for the first time for the ears that I have now. 
Hmm. And that is an important thing to remember because the, that tells us, retell the stories you think you've told a thousand times because they, you're, you're going to get something different out of it today than when you told the story of the, of the, you know, the illness 20 years ago. It's different when you tell it today because you need something different. And maybe that's a lesson to all of us, right? Retell now after the pandemic, go tell the story, okay, of the hardship you had as a child in light of the pandemic. And it's going to be, feel, be told and be heard in a different way. That is so beautiful. I think that you're so right. And I would add to that, we tell, you know, I, I think that doing the work, doing the work as the person is such an important part of our journey that, you know, you personified that in your book and, and your the people in your book embodied that. But that's how we get to tell the different stories and we get to decide what our story is because we're we're continuing, we kind of go in and do our inner work through, through these journeys, which yes. I think is the most fascinating, beautiful part of this. And I always say to people, you know, I wouldn't choose the things that have happened to me in my life, but I also would not trade them because- they make me who I am. And I am so thankful for that. So um, I just want, I, I want to respect your time today. And I and really want to thank you for, for, for everything that you've shared. Like you're fascinating in, in your work. And I think that this book is frankly one of the most important books that I've read in a very long time. Um, but in closing, I just wanted to ask you, what is a tool or piece of advice that you think has best served you in becoming who you are today? Like has brought you to this place? Well, first of all, um, thank you for having me, and I and I and I um, was so thrilled to come on and to hear your story and to see how your story and my story interacted with their overlaps and their differences at the same time. Um, people can follow me on any social media at Bruce Filer, and obviously, life is in the transitions um, continues to be out there. And as I said, I I um, uh, I write a newsletter about these themes twice a week at Bruce Filer dot bulletin dot com and any of that you can find on my website um, so uh, I'll answer that question um, uh, this way so the question is you know what's a piece of advice um, that has 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 guided me and I, I think what I'm, I'm in, I want to do is I want to go back to that meeting that I referenced earlier with Marshall Duke, the psychologist at um, Emory. And Marshall likes to say, I saw him recently, that I invited myself to his house for dinner, which is totally true, uh, <laughs> when I heard about his research. And, and um, he shared with me the idea that children who understand their life story um, uh, can um, you know, navigate their own changes uh, better. Um, and one of the times I saw subsequent to that, uh, I saw Marshall, I happened to be in Atlanta where he lives. I live in Brooklyn, even though I'm from Georgia. And we had my children down there. I think it was maybe their 12th birthday. I can't remember. Something like that. I think it was their 12th birthday. And we decorate the house for them on their birthdays. It's, they're twins. It's a national holiday. Um, <laughs> um, but then I took my dad to a Storyworth booth and um, – and, and I asked my dad the same question that you just asked me, you know, now here you are, it would come to be almost near the end of his life. You know, what have you learned from this experience mm. of answering questions from me uh, every Monday morning? Um, and he I said, what would you tell the grandchildren is the big takeaway here? Um, and he said, uh, tell the stories. Wow. And to me, that's it. Tell the stories. My dad last summer after eight years, finished the product that came from all those stories, which is a 65,000-word mem uh, memoir. 
he had never written anything longer than a memo in his life. And he finished um, that book, what turned out to be a few weeks before he died last October at 86 and a half. And, um, you know, I told this story at his funeral in Bonaventure, the beautiful Bonaventure Cemetery uh, in Savannah, Georgia, is that we are all called to tell stories. And even more, we are called to listen to stories. And there is nothing more powerful than looking someone in the eye and saying, tell me your story. Because what happens, and it's why I, I did come on here and what I believe has happened here, which is the stories are not the same. You just told your story to me. I told my story to you. There are only parts of our stories. We could tell hundred other parts of them. But what happens is, is in the act of the telling and the listening, we each learn something about our own story, and then we learn something together that's been created by the sharing. That's the magic of storytelling. So don't just tell the story, as my father said to me. Also listen to the stories of others, and everybody uh, will be better and stronger as a result of that. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Bruce, for your time today. It was such an honor and a pleasure to, to learn from you. My pleasure. Uh, keep in touch, and uh, Godspeed to your family. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here on the HeartStrong Podcast. Please rate and review this podcast and share an episode that you love with a friend. And when you do, it helps us continue our mission of encouraging people to grow through the challenges in their lives. This podcast is brought to you by the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation and the HeartStrong Collective. To learn more about our work, please visit theheartstrong.com. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the HeartStrong Podcast.